All right, Genesis 36 is where we pick back up together. We left off last time at the end of chapter 35 and finally came to the death of uh, Isaac now. So at that point, remember, as uh, Isaac uh, breathed his last and was gathered to his people, it tells us that his two sons, Esau and Jacob, uh, came together, that they buried him. And again, we saw how God, uh, using, as he often does, sometimes these really uh, difficult times uh, in our lives to, on occasions, accomplish things uh, that maybe uh, wouldn't take place. These two brothers who at times uh, had their struggles, certainly relationally, they, they come together now, they rally around their common love for their father and uh, this difficult time for them as a family. They come together to respectfully uh, pay their respects and bury their father. And now as we go into chapter 36, uh, we come to another one of these uh, genealogies. And I'm sure if you uh, read ahead, you couldn't wait to get to this chapter this evening. As uh, We now come to a genealogy, and in fact, it's actually not a genealogy of the line of the Messiah, and that's why we'll just very quickly here in chapter 36 sort of get a quick overview of Esau. Remember, uh, Esau and Jacob, these two twin brothers, and uh, uh, the line of Jacob is the line of Israel that God will follow, and of course the Messianic line, and the Bible again is always interested uh, in tracing the Messianic line. We do have genealogies of other individuals, but uh, typically there's not a whole lot of press given to that which is not of the Messianic line, because God's heart is to follow and to trace uh, the ministry of the Messiah, because ultimately from Genesis to Revelation, God's heart is to point us always to the person of Jesus Christ, because the Bible says that salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. So we get this sort of uh, quick overview of Esau, which again, he becomes the uh, origin of the people, what we call the Edomites that we see in the Bible uh, tells us in verse uh, 1 of chapter 36, now this is the genealogy of Esau, notice who is uh, Edom, and it says that Esau took wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama, so that's an interesting name for your next daughter, uh, the daughter of Anna, sounds like she should be married to a politician, in fact, Aholabama, that's quite an interesting, sorry. You got to make the best. You got to make the best you can out of things like this. You know, uh, the daughter of Zibian the Hivite, and Basemith, uh, who was notice Ishmael's daughter. So from that side of the family, he took a wife as well, the sister of Nebaoth. Uh, and now Ada, it says, bore Eliaphaz to Esau. And again, that's not the same Eliaphaz who becomes one of Job's counselors when we get to the book of Job. Some commentators uh, try and make that connection. And I think that's a very far stretch. Um, I think you're talking about some uh, generational gaps there, just a, a common name in that day. But I don't think that's a reference to one of those counselors that came to Job. Uh, Basemith also bore Ruel and Aholabama. She bore a few more, notice, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. And these were the sons of Esau born to him while he was in the land of Canaan. Now, at this point, we see a, a separation take place uh, between Esau and Jacob that seems to kind of have some permanence because Esau will now pass off the scene uh, after this point here in chapter 36. It says, Esau took his wives, his sons and daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went out to a country away from the presence 
of his brother Jacob, for their possessions, notice, were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir, and again, it reminds us that Esau is Edom, or the father of the people that we know as the Edomites. And again, so Esau now transitions he goes outside of Canaan, across the Jordan, it says over, verse 8, to the area of Mount Seir, which we know is the modern-day area, many refer to as the area of Petra, uh, which is this incredible rock city. If you've ever seen pictures before, or if you've had an opportunity on Israel trip to take an extension to go to some of the other areas, uh, this seems to be the area where the Edomites uh, dwelt at, and the Bible seems to indicate could potentially be the area where when the Antichrist unleashes his venomous activity during the time of the tribulation against the Jews, that it's very likely, because this place is still in the location where it was, that this might be the place where the Jews flee to for refuge, because it's a very interesting place in that it's very uh, defendable, because there's that very narrow pass uh, going through this kind of rocky uh, kind of you know, tunnel down into a city that's carved out of solid rock. I mean, some of the pictures of this place, if you've ever seen it, are just absolutely incredible what these people did. And, and we get here, it seems, uh, Esau settling into that area and the people of the Edomites ultimately living in that area. But again, notice, here we have another one of these places in the Bible where there's a time of separation. Uh, where now we see that through circumstances, God separates Esau and Jacob. Again, Jacob, who represents the godly line of Israel. Esau, who, as we have seen and pointed out before, is typically a picture and a type of the flesh. He was a man who lived after his carnal passions. He didn't have interest in spiritual things. But he basically lived after his carnal appetites. Remember, he was the one who, for a, a bowl of stew, just gave up his spiritual birthright. He was, he was a man who lived about momentary satisfaction. Uh, he didn't think about what benefit will this have down the road, about eternal things, or about his spiritual heritage or life. Esau was a man of impulse. Uh, and that's how the flesh is. The flesh lives by impulse. Whatever I feel like, I'm going to do. Whatever I desire, I'm going to have. Whatever I'm craving, I'm going to obtain. And whether that's I feel like saying this, and because of the impulse of the moment, I feel like saying this, I'm just going to say it and uh, let it mean what it says and hurt the way it does. But Or you know, I'm going to satisfy myself by indulging some you know, uh, you know, immoral uh, appetite that I have for some wrong behavior or whatever. And, and this was what Esau was like. And we notice now that there's this separation that takes place, much like, remember, God in prior years separated Lot from Abraham. And Lot was the same way. Lot was a man, remember, who had a heart for carnal things. He had a heart for the things of the world. And therefore, God brought circumstances about in such a way that Abraham and Lot parted company. And I personally believe that God was the one that was seeking to separate Lot away from Abraham because God knew that Lot would only just drag Abraham down. And that Lot was only going to be sort of a carnal influence in his life. And therefore, God sought to bring that separation. And it's a picture, of course, how that is really what God is seeking to do in all of our lives as believers. He wants us to continuously grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to walk out the sanctification process whereby after God saves us, 
He's continually working in his life by his spirit, and he is seeking to conform us more to the image of Jesus that we would walk in the spirit and not gratify the lusts of our flesh. And the Bible tells us that we're to do one thing with the flesh, the carnal nature, to crucify it, put it to death, complete separation. You know, when death happens, it's a time of separation. If there's one thing death indicates, separation, complete separation. And God wants us to have a separation from the things of the flesh. So God separated Lot from Abraham as a picture. And here again, notice again, Jacob, the godly line, God now brings separation. And because of the fact it says that their their flocks and possessions, they were both very wealthy, prosperous men. They couldn't dwell together and God orchestrated things whereby there was a need for them to part company. And I'll tell you something. Uh, God has ways. I have seen it in my life. I've watched it in the lives of other people where on occasion God will orchestrate circumstances, whether it's something like this where it's, you know, it just it didn't work out. There wasn't enough resources in the land to sustain them both or whatever. Uh, circumstances, be that what they may, God at times will orchestrate circumstances at times to separate from us or to separate us from potentially maybe something or someone that is only going to be a carnal, worldly, ungodly influence in our life that would just make our spiritual life deteriorate and spiral downward. And so sometimes God will, if we don't, he will intervene and bring about a separation. And he does it for our own benefit at times. And here, just through the circumstances of what was taking place, there now comes this departure, and it seems to have a sense of permanence, where Esau now moves over the other side of the Jordan. He goes over to Mount Seir. He went to a country, it says, verse 6, away from the presence of his brother. Again, seeking after other things. He didn't have an interest in the promises of God or the things of the promised land. Two different hearts and interests, and God now separates them. Verse 9 tells us, and this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. Now, verse 10 basically gives us, it says, the names of Esau's sons. And if you've uh, read ahead or you want to so delight yourself or struggle sleeping tonight, uh, verse 10 basically down through the next section, really in a repetitious way, again, gives to us the names of these same sons that were recorded up in the prior verses. Uh, things of note, if you notice in verse 12, we have the mention there of Timnah, uh, who was the concubine of Eliaphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek, verse 12. Interesting to take note of because that then becomes, of course, the father of the people called the Amalekites. And if you remember what the Amalekites were, they were like perennial enemies of the nation of Israel. Uh, they were constantly attacked. They would attack them from behind when they were traveling uh, throughout the territory on their way to the promised land. And the Amalekites become, again, another picture of the flesh in the Bible, uh, seeking to take advantage of the weaknesses among God's people. And remember, ultimately, God tells Saul to do what? To completely obliterate and to destroy the Amalekites, of which Saul does what? He does not obey God completely, and he tries to keep alive some of the Amalekites, King Agag, it tells us, and then ultimately, all the way years and years later, in the time of Esther, you have a man there named Haman who's trying to exterminate the Jewish people, and again, a satanic effort again to rid the messianic line and exterminate it, uh, and that man, Haman, 
harkens all the way back to the people of Amalek, which God told King Saul to destroy and to do away with those people, and Saul didn't listen. And again, how interesting, how one little concession, little compromise was something that gave a foothold where down the road there were major, major problems later on. And again, just a tremendous reminder, we cannot make compromises with our flesh. We can't make concessions. Well, I just, I mean, this little area, I mean, I can control it. I mean, I can, and God says, no, if you don't deal with it, it eventually is going to come back and it's going to conquer you and it's going to control you. And that's why it's so important that we deal radically as much as it may seem at times that God's asking us to do something radical. You know what? You know, Jesus said, look, does your eye offend you? Pluck it out. Does your arm offend you? Cut it off. You know, and again, the indication there is not necessarily that he's saying, well, if you pluck out your eye, well, well, then you won't lust anymore. The bottom line is, is you know, if you pluck out one eye, you'll, you'll be a one-eyed luster instead of a two-eyed luster. You understand what I'm saying? The point Jesus was making was radical because you'd read it. Look, does your eye offend you? Just pluck the thing out. Pluck your eye out. That would be painful. That's That's an important part of my life. I can't get rid of that. And what God is saying is, look, there is nothing more important than living in holiness and honoring God as a, as a believer. Or, or there is nothing, no amount of pain that is not worth whatever sacrifice it would require to separate something from you that may be potentially a weakness in your sinful nature that's making you continue to be tempted. So Jesus was just speaking in very radical ways. You know, cut your arm off then, poke your eye out. Do, do, he's saying do whatever you got to do. Be radical, make radical decisions. And here, interesting, we see sort of the origin of these people, the Amalekites. Well, again, as you go down these verses, uh, more names here. Verse 15, it then begins to tell us who were some of the chiefs of the sons of Esau. And again, there it's describing some of the different uh, territories, the ideas that they reigned over uh, through the different generations. It mentions, you know, Chief uh, Omar and Zepho and Canaz and Korah and, and Gadam. And, and again, then it just begins to describe in those verses as well some of the different areas particularly that they ruled over. So it's just telling us that, again, God's hand was, was on these uh, people as well, and they had places of position and status. If you look all the way down with me in verse uh, 31, it says, Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Notice, before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Uh, Bala, the son of Baor, reigned in Edom in the name of his city was uh, Dinhaba. So here again, the Bible draws to our attention that this idea of establishing kings over people groups, notice it was something that initially, excuse me, was a worldly idea because it says, verse 31, these were the kings who reigned over an Edom before any king ever reigned over the children of Israel. Now, interesting, what ends up happening later on? Was it ever God's plan or idea to give the nation of Israel a king? No, that wasn't his idea. That was the people's idea. Remember, the people came to Samuel and said, look, we want a king like the other nations have kings. Well, they did have a king. God was their king. They were a theocratic nation. They were governed by God, and they looked to God. Yes, God raised up people to help guide and to lead the people of God, but ultimately God was their king and people were to be submitted to God, but they wanted a worldly leader. And ultimately what happened? Remember, eventually God just told Samuel, you know what? Give them their way. If that's what they want, if they want, a, they want 
things to be the way the world does things, then uh, if they're going to continue to strive after it, God says, give them what they want. And of course, we saw uh, ultimately in Old Testament history, we see later on some of the real downsides beginning with their very first king, King Saul. And the taxes and the problems and then the divided kingdom and, and all those kind of things. And you know, it's just a, a tremendous reminder for us and a lesson that the nation of Israel learned that you know we are border, bordering on utter foolishness when we look to the way that the world does things and says, hey, we need that model. And if we could just bring that model of the way that the world does things into the body of Christ or bring that structure or system from Madison Avenue or, you know, if we can just bring that into the church, that's what we need to do so we can be, you know, uh, you know more relevant and relatable and maybe things will work better. And, and tragically to this day, we're still doing the same thing and it really never seems to yield anything but further problems for God's people. And here, again, is this reminder that before there was ever a king in Israel, again, this began with the other nations around them, and they started looking to these other nations and longing to be like them. So it describes some of the different kings in the different territories. Again, uh, if you go down with me just to the end of verse 43, again, I'm not going to torture you with this. You can thank me for that later. Uh, it says, Chief uh, Magdiel and Chief Iram, these were the chiefs of Edom according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. And Esau was the father, again, it tells us specifically, he was the father of the Edomites. And again, the next, last time we see an Edomite in the Bible is in uh, Matthew chapter 2 with Herod, uh, who it actually tells us uh, becomes an Edomite. So again, you, we look at this list here that's given to us, and if nothing else, I think it just shows us that even among the ungodly, uh, and Esau's line was certainly the line you know, of ungodliness, a picture and a type of the flesh, constant enemies of God's people. Even among the ungodly and the carnal, notice, God is still aware of things in their lives. God in his tremendous love and graciousness, God knows each person's name. God is aware of the family dynamics. He's aware of where they live. He knows their you know, possessions and their positions and where they live and so forth. And to me, it's just a beautiful reminder of the tremendous love of God that even though people may not be serving God or living for God, God doesn't stand disconnected and aloof. He still knows their name and he knows what's going on in their life and he knows where they live and he knows what's happening and he knows their family dynamics. And, you know, I mean, a heart can be an utter rebellion. You know, I don't care about God. I don't want anything to do with God. That may be where you're at, but you know what? God cares about you. And he's aware of your life and he's involved in your life, whether you want him involved or not, uh, not to the level maybe that you could be benefiting from his help and the things that he could do. But how beautiful to me to see that God, again, you get this list here and you're thinking, what, what, you just took up a whole chapter of the Bible. But to me, it's just a testimony, again, that God's a God of detail. He loves all people. He's aware and he knows the distinction. Again, this is set here before us to show us the distinction between this line and the line of Jacob and Israel, which was the godly line, which shows us again that God also knows the distinction of those who are his and those who are not. Again, it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. And just like a list, you know, God knows. God knows who are in this list and this category in the family of God. And God knows exactly who's in this list. And there's only one other family. Jesus himself said, you know, you do the works of your father, the devil. 
Jesus and the Bible only knows of two fathers. There is God the Father, and then there is the father of the unsaved and the ungodly, who is the devil himself. And that we're either children of wrath, children of the devil. Oh, that sounds severe. Actually, it's just biblical. We're either children of the devil, the Bible says, or we're children of God. And unless and until we're born again of the Spirit, we remain in this family as compared to not being in the family of God. And here, again, just a clear reminder, God sets these things in here, and God says, I know who's in this line, and I know who's in the line of Jacob, the line of Israel, the people who were living for God. Well, verse 1 of chapter 37 tells us, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan, and this is the history of Jacob. So again, now we, you know, quick overview of Esau, and now we come to the line of Israel again, which is what the Bible is concerned with. And from here, chapter 37 through the remainder of the book of Genesis, uh, we now get a, a record back to the patriarchs of Israel. And at this point, the Bible now leaves off on the patriarch Jacob and picks up now on Joseph. Notice there in verse 2, it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock of his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, here at this point, we're introduced to Joseph. The remainder of the book of Genesis will now focus on the life of Joseph. He's the main character now. And interesting, 25% of the book of Genesis focuses on the life of Joseph. He gets more press in the Old Testament, more press, in, you know, in a sense, in, in the book of Genesis, certainly, than Abraham, than Isaac, than Jacob. This man, Joseph, 25% or one quarter of the book of Genesis uh, gives us record of his life. And, he, and he's quite an incredible individual. I mean, you want to talk about who someone the Bible sets before us as an exceptional life, an exceptional character. And notice it all begins with this young man at 17 years old. I think this is incredible. Again, you know, here's this 17-year-old young man, and the Lord now begins to work in his life and put the call of God upon his life. God has plans and intentions for him, and God goes after the heart of this young 17-year-old man, you know, at, at the prime cresting to the place of where he's about to enter into adulthood. And God goes after this teenager and puts his call on his life. And God has plans for him that include not just him, but ultimately, you well know, plans not just for him personally, but to preserve and save the line of Israel nationally some, you know, 13 years later when ultimately there'll be a famine in the land and things become so severe that Israel, the small people group of Israel, at that time it's about 70 people, are about to be destroyed by famine and they go over to Egypt where Joseph ends up becoming, remember, the prime minister and has control as the prime region of all the grain in Egypt and he's able to save uh, the people as a picture of a savior as Jesus he is, a tremendous type of Christ we'll see as we go through and study his life. But here God now begins to work in this young man's life and I'll tell you, Going into the life of Joseph, so important to realize, if there is anybody in the Bible that eliminates all the excuses that we so often can present 
for why God's plan can't unfold in our life or why we can't do what God's asking us to do or why we can't live a victorious Christian life. And, you know, that the victim mentality, which we can all at times fall prey to that. If there's anybody in the Bible who just takes away all of our excuses for that, it is Joseph. I mean, when you just think for a minute about the experiences of Joseph and the things that this guy went through, here's some, again, 17-year-old young man. He's living in a family where his father has four wives. He's got 12 siblings, we know, which it tells us in the Bible they all hate his guts. His mother died giving birth to his younger brother. His sister Dinah was raped in a prior chapter. His two brothers went through and murdered an entire town. You want to talk about a dysfunctional family? (laughs) You want to talk about somebody who was raised in less than desirable circumstances who could say, well, if you only knew, if you only knew the upbringing I had and what my house was like, four different mothers we had, and then, you know, 13 children, and, 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 and my, you know, two of my brothers, they were mass murderers, literally. My one sister, you know, she went out and just, you know, caused problems in a town and lost her purity. And, and I, mean, he, I mean, this, and then on top of that, when you track then what begins to happen in his life, because of the hatred and jealousy of his brothers and, you know, things were not good in family dynamics and he gets sold off and then he's in slavery, then he unjustly gets, a, you know, thrown into prison because he's accused of attacking a woman that it wasn't even him and he's completely unjustly, falsely judged, thrown in prison, sits there in prison. I mean, when you watch everything this guy goes through, And through the whole process, and keep in mind, he has no copy of the scriptures. He doesn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of him. He doesn't have anything near the understanding you and I do of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He has no support system spiritually. He certainly came from, if you want to call it, dysfunctional home life with lots of problems to where he could have said, you know what, why bother? Who cares? Who cares? I might as well just sleep with Potiphar's wife. I mean, every, I mean, look at my family anyway. And why deprive myself of a moment of satisfaction? Maybe I'll get promoted if I sleep with this woman. If there could have been anybody who could have regressed into that victim mentality and kind of become bitter towards God or angry or found reasons to justify living in wrong ways, as we all at times can do. You know, and again, I'm not negating that when we go through painful things, and my heart breaks. You know, I know that probably every one of in this room has some measure of baggage in our background, in our upbringings, and you know, abusive things, and hurtful things, and and maybe a messed up family dynamic, or divorce, or problems. And, th- and I'm not diminishing the difficulty of those things. But if there's anybody in the Bible, Joseph, that's set before, that says, "Look, but you can't. I can't lean on those things as excuses." To say, I am the way that I am because. Or, I, I had the right to behave the way I behave or to not do the things that I know that are right. I have the right to do that because I'm a victim of this or because this happened to me or because this didn't happen to me or I didn't get this opportunity. The Bible says, no. No, it's possible. Joseph had nothing other than faith and a relationship with God. And he did it. And he did it as a 17-year-old young man. He let those things be an impetus in his life to do the right thing, 
to do things in a right way. And just an incredible stellar example. And I look at this and I think, man, Lord, raise up more young men like this. Give us Joseph's. Men who you can work in their hearts at a young age and so get a hold of their hearts that that would carry them through all the things that this guy... And, and what God does in his heart here at this young age, it carries him and it sustains him. And he hangs on to that for years of trials and difficulties and things that he goes through and ultimately becomes someone who God uses powerfully. And tremendously, and I just love to see this beautiful example the Bible sets before us of this young adult man and how I wish, you know, that God would move among our teenagers and our 17, 18, you know, 20, 22 year olds and just get a hold of their hearts like this in pagan ungodly days and say, look, forget about what God God is big enough, and if God's in your corner and he's in your life, the Bible I read, Jesus says, with God, nothing is impossible. That us and God, uh, that apart from him we can do nothing, but with God incredible things are possible. And here's Jacob now, this young man, will, or Joseph, excuse me, will begin to look at his life in these chapters and these weeks ahead. But notice as we begin to look at his life here in chapter 37, we're told that as the story opens here, that Joseph, it says, was out feeding the flock, verse 2, with his brothers. And it says he brings back a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel, verse 3, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, so he made him a tunic of many colors. Now, here's Joseph, and it seems to indicate, when you look at the account, that Jacob, his father, sees potential in Joseph. You know, and sees something in Joseph's life of promise and potential. And it seems to me to indicate, beyond just a favoritism thing, that Jacob recognizes that there's some quality in this young man. And he sees something in this 17-year-old that's far above and beyond even what he saw in his elder brothers. And again, the family business was hurting. It was hurting flocks. And, of course, we know some of the things that, like, Reuben, the firstborn, had done. He had slept with one of the wives of his father. And Simeon and Levi, they were the ones that went through Shechem in, in a mass murder, just, you know, obliterated all the males in the city after this deceptive plot. So, again, here's individuals who, these older brothers, they're forsaking some of the, the roles and responsibilities. So Jacob, it seems, confers responsibility, I think, to Joseph potentially to have some role of leadership and oversight over the family business of the shepherding business that they were a part of, of tending the flocks. And it says that he brings back a bad report about the shepherding process, the feeding of the flock that was going on with his brothers. Now, again, is Joseph here just a snitch? You know, when people read this, they say, oh, this guy's a little snitch. You know, you're going back, Dad... Do you know what they're doing? You know, they're they're out there, they're smoking cigarettes with the flock, or you know, like like he's just little. And sometimes people picture Joseph like that, but he's just like this little, you know, little stink, you know, snotty nosed snitch. And again, he's the second youngest of all his brothers. He's seven, this little punk, seventeen year old, and you know, he's Mr. Daddy's boy, and so he's running home. I that's not the picture I get of Joseph. When I see the sterling character the Bible sets before us of the life of Joseph. I don't think this is him being a snitch. Quite honestly, I think this is a demonstration that Joseph was a good steward. Because you have to understand something. Whatever they were doing, this bad report he brought back, 
First of all, it could very well be that Jacob asked him to bring back a report. Because you'll notice as we get further into the chapter, Jacob sends Joseph out and he tells him, the father, go check on your brothers, go see what's going on with your brothers and the flock and bring back word to me. So it could very well be, not that you know Joseph's just this little tattletale and snitch, it could very well be that his father said, Joseph, uh, I, your brothers always seem to be up to something, and so would you go check and bring back a report? And he just, he did what his father asked, he brought back report. And the report was that they were doing things apparently that they shouldn't have been doing. What that bad report entails, I don't know, but I'll tell you this, if they are not being good stewards of the flock, and neglecting the flock or doing things that they shouldn't be doing, they're not just misbehaving, they are jeopardizing the family's survival. Because see, if that flock is destroyed, that flock dies off or diminishes, you're talking about jeopardizing the entire family unit because that was their business. That was their livelihood. That was their way of surviving. They were shepherds. So it wasn't just, oh, they're being bad boys. No, they are being poor stewards of our father's resources and of our family responsibilities. And, and they're being uh, you know, irresponsible. So he brings back report as a good steward. And it shows you that this young man, he had a heart of stewardship. And he realized the importance of these things. Hey, these are important responsibilities. This is our father's flock. And, and he comes back, again, I don't think in a snitchy way, and it shows he's a man of stewardship. And I think that's something that's a very noble thing. The Bible encourages stewardship. And I think a lot of times when somebody sees something of potential in someone's life, I know for myself, I can tell you from a leadership perspective, one of the things that I look for is I look for somebody who is a steward. I look for somebody and I look how they're managing what God's already given to them, their marriage, their family, the responsibility that they do have. Jesus said he was faithful in little, will be faithful in much. And, and Jacob just seems to recognize something in Joseph. Joseph comes back, he gives this report. Well, verse 3 also does tell us that there seems to have been a little bit of a favoritism, and this will play into our text as we move forward, where uh, Jacob says loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. So again, there was this dynamic of favoritism that seemed to exist where Jacob had a real love and it seems that there was a favoritism shown towards this one son. Now, if anybody you think would have learned the lesson of the mistakes of playing favorites, <laughs> you would think Joseph would have learned that because that was the problem, remember, with him and Esau. With Isaac and Rebekah, they both kind of had their favor. You know, one kind of favored the one son and the other kind of favored the other son. And it caused nothing but family problems. And if there's any lesson, you know, certainly from a parental perspective, it is never a good thing for a parent to show favoritism to any one of their children. It only causes further, and, and you know, as parents, we have to be careful of that. You know, there's natural inclinations or maybe connections we have with certain children over, and we need to guard ourselves against that because that does nothing but cause problems in the sibling relationship because kids are perceptive. And they perceive that, you know, mom, dad's doing that for them and not for me, or they give all their time to them. And, and, and Jacob showed this favoritism towards Joseph, and the brothers just despised him all the more. It caused family problems because of that. And one of the things he did, verse 3, is he said he made him a tunic of many colors. And the Hebrew seems to indicate of lengthy sleeves, like long flowing sleeves. I'm certain, again, that this was something that distinguished him one way or the other 
from the rest of his brothers, that his father to demonstrate this love for him. And I think this long robe probably indicated as well, too, it distinguished him as someone who was not one of the common laborers like the rest of the family who worked in the flock. It was some distinguishment of responsibility that, that Jacob had conferred rulership to him in a way and had given him a role to probably have some realm of leadership with the flock helping out in the family business of shepherding. But, of course, his brothers, it says, verse 4, saw that their father loved him more than his brothers, notice, and they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So very clear the Bible is how his brothers felt towards him. Uh, his uh, older brothers, the ten older brothers, it says they hated him, not just they didn't like him, they hated him and they could not speak peaceably to him. The idea is that they couldn't say anything good about him, anything good to him. It was constant animosity and conflict. And all ten of these older brothers really just despised, the idea is, their younger brother Joseph. Verse 5 says, Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. <laughs> so he said to them, Please, Hear this dream which I have dreamed. There were binding sheaves in the field. There we were, excuse me, binding sheaves in the field. And then behold, check this out, brothers. My sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, uh, your sheaves, they stood all around and they bowed down to my sheaf. Interesting dream, huh? He says. And his brothers said to him, they understood exactly what the picture that meant. Shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us what are you trying to say our sheaves bowed down to your sheaf what are you trying to say you know on top of father already loving you best and giving you some responsibility and leadership with a family shepherding business now you're trying to say one day we're going to bow down to you like a king or something that you're actually going to reign over us somehow and we're going to bow down like humble servants at your foot at a throne Shall you reign over us and have dominion? So verse 8 says, They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So look what happens. God begins to, to begin to speak to this young man, Jacob, uh, Joseph. Excuse me. God begins to put dreams into his heart. And the things that God is revealing to him are things that are going to come to pass in his life. Now, not immediately. But it's interesting that even the dream itself has to do with what? Sheaves. It has to do with with food, with, with wheat, and ultimately that's exactly a correlation to what's going to happen when Joseph becomes the prime minister there in Egypt and does what? He, he salvages a bunch of grain, puts it in storehouses to be able to save his family, and eventually, years down the road, exactly what he is receiving as a revelation from the Lord will take place. His brothers will come and bow down to him. They won't realize it's him at first. But when he's the prime minister in Egypt, second in command, they will literally bow down to him. So God is revealing things to him in his heart. And Jake, uh, Joseph here just shares those things freely with his brothers. And some look at this and they try and say, well, yeah, that's one of Joseph's problems right there. There's a glaring fault. The guy was just arrogant and he was kind of a little, you know, snotty, haughty little, you know, let me tell you my dream. And, and you Personally, I think all you see there is just youthful naiveness with this young man. I don't think, you know, from the furthest thing, do I sense that Joseph is arrogant for sharing what God was revealing to him. Was Joseph naive? 
Yeah, I think he was naive. And like most people who are marked by youth, one of the marks of youthfulness is naivety. Uh, and a lot of times not understanding at times how to go about certain things and go about the right thing the right way. Uh, and, and I think that Joseph and his naiveness is just not taking the consideration. Some of the lessons we learn as we get older in life of kind of how relationships work and there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent and not say, say certain things. And he's just a 17-year-old young man. God's revealed things to him. God's put his calling on his life and he's just excited. And he just, he just wants to tell, hey, check this out, man. God's speaking to me. He gave me a dream. And he's just sharing the vision and revelation God gave to him about God's plan for his life. And in his naivety, he just pours out those things. But sadly, his brothers don't quite uh, want to rejoice with him <laughs> the way he is excited about all these things. In fact, they negatively respond uh, to what is going on here. And again, I think it's just a reminder for us. You know, if God reveals things to us, and he does, sometimes just because God reveals something to us doesn't mean that we're supposed to share it with everybody else. There are certain things that God reveals to us that are supposed to be an encouragement to us. They're a revelation to us. They're preparation for us. It may not necessarily mean just because God showed us something. The Bible says the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And just because God gives a revelation to us about something that maybe he's going to do with our life or in our life, it doesn't always mean necessarily that we're supposed to share it with other people. Because guess what? Sometimes they may not see what you've heard from the Lord. They may not understand. And it may come across in a way where instead of them wanting to cheer for you, they want to choke you, you know, kind of like with his brothers here. They, oh, all right, we're so excited for you. Joseph, that is great that God's going to promote you and exalt you and use you. And none of that. They don't want, they're not cheering for him. They feel threatened by him. They're angry. They misunderstand. Why? Because God didn't give that revelation of him. You see Nehemiah where it says in the book of Nehemiah that as he goes into the area of Jerusalem, he said, I did not yet tell the people what God had put in my heart regarding the plan to, remember, rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah waited until the right time, and then he gradually began to reveal to the people at the right time what God had put into his heart. And it's just a reminder. Has God spoken things to you? Praise the Lord. I pray God gives you dreams and follow the spiritual dreams and things God puts in your heart, but, but use stewardship. Recognize what God's doing in your heart. Maybe he's not doing the same thing in other people's hearts yet. And sometimes there's wisdom in using reservation. And here, Joseph just shares these things and his brothers, unfortunately, misunderstand. It says they hated him all the more. Verse 9, notice he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, a different illustration, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and to his brothers, and this time his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? Again, his father recognized exactly what the dream indicated. And now his father, again, take notice, even as a young man at 17, even his parent, his father and his mother didn't understand what God was putting in his heart to do. And you know, boy, I'll tell you, that's a great lesson for those of us, especially in this room tonight as adults, to realize, you know what, God may work 
in the heart of one of our children. God may work in the heart of one of our young people. And just because they're young or just because we have a sense of wisdom and life experience, we should not all of a sudden just assume and discourage maybe what they think God is speaking to their heart because maybe God's putting a dream in their heart. And God's putting something in their heart that he wants to do in their life. And we want to be careful that we don't, in a sense, discourage and diminish that. And here his own father didn't. And again, these were things God was going to do down the road in his life 13 years later. And he's just excited because God is speaking to him. Interesting, as you look at these verses here, verse 9, when you get to Revelation chapter 12, this becomes a very helpful verse because it interprets what Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 is referring to, indicating Revelation 12, 1 is talking about the nation of Israel. And we don't have time to go into that. But again, I point that out to say this. One of the most helpful keys to unlock the book of Revelation is to know the rest of your Bible. Because as you know the rest of the word of God, then when you see things show up in Revelation that are symbols, and these very symbols of the sun, the moon, the 11 stars, these show up in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, 1, this shows up, and it indicates what was that originally in reference to? The nation of Israel. So we know in Revelation 12, 1, that's referring to Israel. Not, oh, well, let's see, we're going to make that symbol, we're going to allegorize that to mean, um, no, no, we let the Bible interpret the Bible. The greatest commentary on the scripture is the scripture. And for places, especially like Revelation, it's good to know the word because it helps you unlock, especially the truths God has in the book of Revelation. Verse 11, his brothers, notice, envied him. But his father, interesting, good father, he kept the matter in mind. Like Mary, he kind of pondered over this. Hmm, I, you know, I wonder what God's speaking to my son, Joseph. You know, there seem to be that God's hand is on his life and... His father didn't like it, but it says his father, he kept it in mind. He pondered it. Well, then his brothers went to feed their flock, their father's flock, excuse me, in Shechem, which is interesting because Shechem was the place where they got into all kinds of problems at. So again, what are the brothers doing going back to Shechem? That was where Dinah lost her sexual purity. That was where the two brothers went through and murdered all the males. It was an ungodly area. It was a season of kind of backsliding for the family. And now they're wandering over into Shechem with the flock. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said, here I am. And he said, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out to the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. So I almost get the sense he goes there, and again, just a young, naive man. It's almost like he's lost. You know, he's just kind of wandering around, and some guy recognizes him. Are you, are you Joseph, one of Jacob's sons? And he sees him, and the man asked him, verse 15, saying, what are you seeking? Good question. Sometimes I think God asks us that. What are you seeking? What are you after? So he said to him, well, I'm seeking my brothers, please. Tell me where they're feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan, about 20 miles from the area of Shechem. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Again, take note of the character of this young man, because I think it's, again, more indications how when God's hand and calling is on a person's life, notice how Joseph, he, he's faithful in little things. His father is giving him errands. His father is giving him responsibilities, and he's compliant. His dad says, hey, can, can you go check on your brothers? Bring back word to me. Bring back some report. Let me know. And this young man takes on any task. I don't want to do that. Send one of the servants, dad. What do I got to do that for? I, I don't want to. You know, 
he just takes on whatever tasks his father asks him to do. Again, a great example of just faithfulness in little areas of stewardship. And verse 18 says, When they saw Joseph afar off, even before he came near. And again, you, guess why they could see him afar off? There's that stinking multicolored coat with a big robe that, you know, big arms that sleeves that dad gave him. There's that dreamer. Notice verse 18. They conspired against him to beat him up, to kill him. This is how much they hated the guy. I mean, that lit, to kill him. They wanted to literally take his life. They hated him so much. And, they, and you think you have family problems. There you go. Verse 19. And they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Here comes that dreamer. Come, therefore, let us now kill him. Cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. And we shall see what becomes of his dreams. The little dreamer, we'll, we'll put an end to his dream. We'll wake him up real quick. Let's cut his throat and throw him down into a pit, they say. But Reuben, the eldest, heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him. That he might, the idea was Reuben thought, that he would deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So he's thinking of a way to minimize the you know, gravity of what they wanted to do to their youngest brother by murdering him and tossing him into a pit. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors, the Bible says, that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty and there was no water. So the indication is like in a dry cistern, and they were common in that day, a kind of you know a cistern, which was like a storage tank for water. Interesting, Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, uh, tells us this. Uh, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. This is the words of Joseph's brothers years later. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. So again, the Bible points out to us later in chapter 42 that they throw him into this pit, and he's down there, like any 17-year-old, saying, Guys, please, and he's crying. And he's screaming out, stop, please don't do this to me. Why are you? And, and he's crying out to them, asking for their you know, deliverance of him as they've you know, stripped his clothes off him, thrown him down into this pit to leave him there. And verse 25, look at this. And they sat down to eat a meal. You want to talk about cold-hearted cruelty. Here's their brother screaming and crying. Uh, and they're sitting there having a meal, enjoying themselves. Right? Their brother's down in this pit crying and screaming and isn't it amazing how cold-hearted families can actually be to one another i mean that's shocking shocking that siblings and family members can can actually treat each other that severely it's amazing how cruel family members can even be to one another just astonishing it tells us then they lifted their eyes and looked and there was coming a company of ishmaelites from gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry him down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, he comes up with an idea. Hey, what profit is there if we kill our brother and then try and hide or conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. And then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. 
and that band of traders took Joseph, it says, down to Egypt. Interesting, for the price, less than a price, in fact, it's 30 pieces of silver for the price of a redeemed slave. For less than the price of a slave, they sell their brother for 20 shekels of silver, and they say, you know, instead of killing him and having that on our conscience, let's just sell him off to this caravan of foreign people, and he now gets taken away, this young 17-year-old man, stripped from his family, taken down to Egypt as a slave. They just sell him and wash their hands of him. They want nothing to do with him. But interesting, take notice, where is he getting to? To Egypt. Where did God want him to get to eventually? To Egypt. So through painful, unpleasant, horrific circumstances, God is still working in this young man's life, getting him to where he wanted to be. Verse 29 tells us Reuben, remember, who wanted to spare him, returned. He saw Joseph wasn't in the pit and tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, uh, and I, where shall I go? He felt a sense of responsibility as the eldest. So they took Joseph's tunic, they killed a kid of the goats, dipped the tunic in the blood to try and indicate like Joseph had been attacked by an animal. And then they sent the tunic of many colors and brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for many days. And all his sons and daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, For I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. And thus his father wept for him. And now the Midianites had sold, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So his brothers sell him off. They then take his garment, they kill an animal, they bloody up the garment, and you want to talk about serious, cold-hearted, then they go back to their father. And they say, hey, do you recognize this? This isn't, we found this. And they hold this bloody garment of this colored robe. And, and Jacob says, oh my goodness, it's Joseph. Some wild beast has killed him, he's dead. And they pull off this complete lie and deception to their father. They deceive their father. And then, to make it worse, it actually says, verse 35, they all tried to comfort their dad. Here he is mourning and grieving that his son has been murdered by an animal. And they're saying, oh, dad, we're going to miss him too. I mean, you want to talk about Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Man, it is shocking how deceitful and rude and cruel and harsh human beings can be to one another apart from Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord that God has an ability to redeem hearts and to change people and to make them different. And only by the grace of God changing our hearts do we have the love of God to be able to treat people the way God wants us to. And only when Jesus comes into a family does a family begin to experience everything that God wants them to. If not, it's every man for yourself, lie, cheat, be selfish, rob, rip off, hurt whoever. It doesn't matter. It's all about me. And this is exactly what you see tragically happening here in this very family. But the amazing thing is this, and again, we'll, we'll see more and talk more about Joseph as we go forward, is verse 36 tells us that as a result of what happened in Joseph's life, 
He goes down into Egypt and he gets sold into the house of Potiphar and God does what? God moves him to the next station of where he needs to be. Turn with me just real quickly to Psalm 105. We don't have really time left here, but I just want to expose you to a verse because it's very interesting to see as we kind of close out this one spot here at the end of this chapter. Psalm 105, verse 16. It tells us this regarding God. It says, Moreover, he, referring to God, Psalm 105, verse 16, Moreover, God called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. Look at verse 17. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Do you see that? Here in just the everyday natural circumstances of life, God in his providence is superintending and it says here that God sent Joseph before the people to get into Egypt. That God, it tells us here, sent a man before him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Point very simply is this. As God was directing and superintending even over all the bad and horrific things that were happening in Joseph's life. And for 13 years, God's preparing this man. He's getting his character ready. He's getting his heart ready. And God is moving him through the stages and seasons of his life, even through painful, horrible problems, tragedies that he was going through, to ultimately get him to the place where he wanted him to be for the right hour, for the right time, because God had something to do in his life that was more than just about him. And can I tell you something? The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 28, what? That, that God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Listen, tonight, if you love God and you're called according to his purpose as a son or a daughter of God who's embraced Jesus Christ, even all the horrible things that have happened to your life, mistreatment, wrongdoings, painful things, all those things God can orchestrate and coordinate to get you to the right place for the right time because God doesn't want to just work in your life. He wants to work through your life. And Joseph's life is a fitting example of that reality because it says that, again, as he's experiencing everyday circumstances, the providence of God is superintending. And God is superintending over everything. And God's watching what's happening. And I'm not saying that God caused those things to happen. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying God caused the sinful, evil, painful things to happen that happened throughout Joseph's life. But God overruled in them. And God can overrule in all the painful, sinful, rotten things that happen in our lives to bring us right to the place where he wants us to be because God in his providence, God plans a work and then God works his plan and nothing interferes with that. He plans his work for your life and then he works out his plan in your life. And take courage of that despite what you've gone through or maybe going through.